How's everybody? I didn't know if it was going to be the band tonight. If, if it was the band tonight, we were going to Waffle House, and we were just going to shut this thing down and talk about it. But um, a few of you showed up, so I guess we'll do work today. Hey, um, everybody okay after yesterday? Uh, no, no, no problems? Did anybody um, just, like, turn on the TV and, and watch game day, and then you just watched it until you went to bed last night? Any confession? And if you did, do you really feel good about yourself now? Um, <laughs> I did too. I, yesterday, to, the family is gone. Uh, went to the beach. I forced them as a last-minute invitation, so I told them, "Go to the beach. Go do your thing. I would love you um, if you would do, do that." And I talked to Danielle this morning, and she said, "I said I feel like my my, my right arm is missing." And she goes, "What happened?" She, <laughs> I said, "It's you. It's you. You're not here. I, I got the jitters a little more. You're my right arm. You're missing." And so I don't. I feel a little bit more anxious. Uh, my name's Reynolds, by the way. I'm one of the elders here at the church, and um, this freaks me out. I just want y'all to know that, and I know I've been up here before, done this before, and Bailey said, I told him this morning, I said, Bailey, just pray for me, just pray for me. He said, Dad, you've done that before. And I said, I don't know, but I, for some reason, you guys aren't here, and it just, it just wigs me out, because it's still, I, I still laugh at God a lot with what God will take a pardoned rebel and do with their life. It just amazes me. Uh, and so when I'm up here, and I've known about this for a few weeks, um, you know, I consider myself just an armchair theologian, meaning I just open my Bible, I put it on the chair, the arm of my chair, and I read it. And that's all I got. And that's all we are, all are. So I feel like that we can just be a group of folks. And again, if there were just five of you, we'd go to the Waffle House and do this, but we'll do it here this morning. Let's just open up our Bible this morning. Let's see what God will do through the Word of God this morning in our hearts, and let's just let it work. Let it work. And then we won't have to count on rental. We won't have to count on the band. We won't have to count on anything. So, um, I did tell Paul, though, if it goes bad, and he always asks when, when I'm going to preach, he says, uh, you need a couple extra songs. I said, just be ready. Be ready. I said, if I go that way, you guys come this way. Or if we do two or three rounds on the communion t- today, just understand, okay? We'll do, we'll do it that way. Um, but I, I love you guys, and I do- love doing life with you guys, and we talk about it um, a lot. Uh, Brad and Jennifer and the boys and Arabella are in the mountains relaxing, I hope. I don't think they have any cell phone coverage. Good for Brad. Um, hopefully they are getting rest for their souls um, this weekend. So they're going to come back tomorrow. But it's good for us, tribe. It is good for us to let them go, to let him go. You heard him say maybe a month or so ago, he never thought, he never thought it would be doing ministry would be such a weight that it is. And so he needs that. We need to encourage that. We need to um, enforce him to do that. Um, Hey, and the other thing, if this goes bad, my mom and dad are here. And um, so if I go sit in my mom's lap and suck my thumb, you'll know it's it's okay. Um, My mom and dad, I'm just going to tell you, I'm not making this up. I come from good stock. I come from very good stock. Um, I was telling Keith, he and I, Keith and I went for a run this morning, and um, I was just telling him about my parents going to be there, and telling about my dad, and I was talking about, let's go back, I was talking about his retirement party, and all the things that people came up and talked to about my dad, and they said, he was this, he, he never was too busy, he was never, he never put someone off, and Keith said, he sounded a lot like Jesus. I said, whew, my dad's not Jesus. But man, I come from good stock, so I love you. So glad you're here. Um, this isn't the first time I've done this in front of them. Matter of fact, the first time I did anything, and I told this the first time I preached, first time I did anything in front of my parents, kind of church-wide, it was uh, church league basketball. 
And I was about a 20-year-old punk. And uh, my college roommate and I were playing some church league basketball. My parents were home from college, I guess, hooked up with their home church, the church I grew up in, Eastminster Presbyterian. And um, so we get out there. And somehow, I don't know how it worked, but it was we were playing against a team that had someone from Eastminster on it. Maybe it was an Eastminster versus an Eastminster. Um, But you know how basketball guys, you know, when you get a little bit heated, um, is Farmer in here? You, you know, he's got a team. Go. It, it gets a little bit heated sometimes. And I was ticked off. I was not getting the calls. My, again, my parents in the stands. This church league, so there's about four or five people in the stands. I'm ticked off, didn't get the call. I go down, and I just grabbed this guy. It wasn't the rep. It was another guy, Zach Smethers. Zach, if for some reason you're listening today, today, I don't know how old he is. I'm 42, so I guess he's, I don't know how old he is, but don't want to insult him like that. But... I just shoved him to the ground in front of my parents. That was my first experience doing anything with the church in front of my parents. So I know it cannot uh, get any worse than that this morning. So I feel pretty confident. Hey, here's the plan. Here's what we want to do today. We want to parachute in on a, a parable in Matthew. And uh, it's going to be, for many of you, it's going to be a very familiar uh, passage. And, and that's okay. And if it is a familiar passage, I hope that God will do something incredible um, through this passage, I hope that it will just be a reminder to you how how great a God we ha- have, how much He forgives us, how great His grace is, how great His mercy is. I just hope that it speaks to you. I hope that you don't see see the parable we're going to talk about and go, "Yeah, I know that one. I got that one down." What's next? We're going to get back to Nehemiah. I just hope that not Reynolds will speak to you, but God will speak to you through this parable. Because Paul says it tells the Philippians in chapter 3, he says, Hey, it's no trouble for me to write to you the same things again. It's no trouble for me to tell you again. And it's a safeguard for you. So in other words, when we go to the Word of God and we hear it over and over, it is a safeguard for us. It's like when we pull into a parking lot, wherever we are, and I have the whole family with me. I'm in the driver's seat. The boys are in the back. As soon as I pull in, they know exactly what I'm going to say. Watch your doors, boy. Watch your doors. Don't, don't slam. It's a safeguard for you, got boys. Because if you don't hear it, your tendency, Bennett, is to let that door fly. And the Mercedes next to me has a huge dent. And it's the same thing Paul is saying. It's no trouble for me to tell you the same thing again, people, Philippians. Because it's a safeguard for your soul. So we say, why do we need to go back to the Word of God over and over and over? Because it's a safeguard for us. It is. And so we need to hear it. And then if you haven't, maybe there's somebody in here who's never heard this parable before, has never cracked open the Bible. And wouldn't that be an awesome thing? Because that would mean that um, opportunity abounds. But I pray that if that's you this morning, um, you might, the Word of God, you would see kind of who you are, who we are. That'd be number one. And the second thing I hope you would see is that how great God is. And then the other thing I hope that you would see is in light of who we are and how great God is, what a life of response looks like. What a life of living for our Heavenly Father looks like. So that's what we're going to do today. And then after that, we're going to gather around the table, um, the Lord, take the Lord's Supper and communion. And um, then we're going to go out and just live and celebrate and and, and worship through our life. And so that's, uh, that's my prayer today, and that's my hope, and that's where we're going. So um, let's pray. God, I just pray this morning, Lord, for distractions. I pray for the enemy who wants to, um, who wants to attack. And I know that well. And I know that through insecurities, Lord. And I know that I can put on a front 
that seems confident, that seems secure, that seems under control, Lord. But I know that the enemy can come in and tell me lies. Lord, so my confidence is in you. My confidence this morning is in the word of God. My confidence is that the word of God would not return void, that it would do a great work, whether we know you well or Lord, or, that, or whether we just know you as someone out there, something that we really can't identify with personally, Lord. I pray for everyone in here that hearts would be open. I do know confidently, Lord, as it says in Timothy, that all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and that it's profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correcting and for training in righteousness, that the man of God or that the woman of God would be competent and equipped for every good work. And so that I pray, Lord, that you would equip us today, that by opening your book, we would be more and more equipped and ready to live in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, if you would open it to Matthew chapter 18, first book in the New Testament. And um, let me just kind of let you know where we are in Matthew chapter 18. At the beginning of that book, the beginning of that chapter, it's amazing. When you put on a microphone and you start thumb, thumbing through your Bible, books of the Bible disappear. <laughs> they just go away. Like they took Matthew out, and I did find it, but it just disappears. Uh, but we're not. Uh, Brad said it before, and I've said it before. We're not. We're not opposed to checking out the index or the. Uh, yeah, is that the index? Index at the end. What's at the beginning? Table of contents. Table of contents. Um, my parents are proud. Um, <laughs> we're not opposed to looking at that. So um, find Matthew in chapter 18, and we're going to do some work. Hey, here's where we are in that book. Up to that point, Jesus has been going through um, Jerusalem and the areas around that, and he has just been proving basically who he is, that he is God, that he does miracles, and that he heals people, and that he does great work. And, and, and he's even foretelling um, the future to the disciples, that, that one day I am going to be taken from you, that I will be crucified, that I'll be, I will be risen up, um, and, and I, will, I do have the power to forgive sins. But at this point, the disciples are... Um, it's kind of teaching time. School is in session because we're, they're in Capernaum, Capernaum, and Capernaum is kind of up near the Sea of Galilee, and they're going to start working their way down towards Jerusalem. So I don't know how many days or where we are um, in light of Jesus' uh, crucifixion, but we're getting closer. So it's the latter part of his ministry. And so it's teaching time. He's got these 12 um, guys, uh, goofballs, basically. I mean, he is taking raw wood and creating the church out of raw wood, and that gives me more and more and more confidence but um, he, it's, so school is in session. So he tells the disciples come up to him and they want to know. They, they tell Jesus, so, so who is the greatest? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Is it Abraham? These are the disciples. Is it Isaac? Is it Jacob? Is it one of us maybe? Um, Moses? John Piper? I mean, who, who, who's the greatest? And Jesus kind of... Take, gets their box, opens up their box, says, your box doesn't look like my box. Listen, in the, and he calls a child over to them and he says, listen, in the kingdom of heaven, unless you humble yourself like a little child, you won't even get in the kingdom of heaven. 
You know, it's this point in the ministry that where these disciples were proud and boastful to be hanging out with Jesus. And I can identify that we're hanging out. Oh, yeah, you know, there's Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm on the J team. I'm, I'm that guy. And so they're proud to be hanging with Jesus. And um, he says, unless you humble yourself like a little child, you won't even enter, enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, so those are the greatest. And then later in the chapter, he says, you know, what? in the kingdom of heaven, and, and the disciples had asked him, what is this kingdom of heaven like? What is this kingdom of God like? And he, he goes on and tells another little parable. And he says, you know, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like this, that if... Um, if one of your brothers goes astray, you kind of go after him. Matter of fact, he tells a little parable about a farmer. He says, you know, imagine a farmer. If he has 100 sheep on a hill and one goes astray, he leaves the other 99 and he goes after it. He says, so that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And you should be pursuing the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And that's what you should be going after. Because, boys, you're going to be planting the church. And so that's what living, doing community together looks like. That's what doing life looks like. If someone goes astray, you go after him. And you rejoice more over that sheep that is found than you do over the 99 that never went astray. And then he gets a little bit tougher in that. And he says, and this is also what the kingdom of heaven is like. He said, um, if a brother sins against you, uh, you go confront him in private. Not to humiliate him, not to embarrass him, but out of love and out of restoration and in hope for repentance. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And if they don't listen to you, then you bring a brother with you. You bring two or three guys with you and you, then you go confront them again. It's not to call them out. It's not to go after them so that you could put them on a pedestal and say, look what they did. Look at their sin. It's to say, we love you, brother, and you're going astray. And then if that doesn't work, then you bring it before the church. You see, this is, I'm not preaching on that today. That's church discipline. You think I'm going to touch church discipline while Brad's out of town? I'm not going there. But that's what the kingdom of heaven is like, is that you're, you're so in love with the people that you're worshiping with, that your brothers and sisters that are all around the world. I see a young man out there. I told him last week, um, Kennedy, oh my gosh, he just came up and hugged me. He's here on an internship um, from Kenya with a ministry in town, Impact 360, and he just came up embracing me, and, and we were just, you could just see the lights in his eyes about the worship we had had to worship our Savior. And I told him, I said, it's, it's amazing to me, it's amazing to me that right now, maybe it's darker, but right now people in Kenya are worshiping the same God. Same God. So it's not just people at Crosspoint, but when we see our brothers and sisters in Christ, we go after them out of love. But we have turned that church discipline thing in. If I see my brother, I'm going to call him out. And boy, we're going to treat him. We're going to bust him up. That's not what church discipline is. It's, 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 it's love going after with repentance. That is church discipline. But I'm not preaching on that today. And so we get to uh, Matthew at chapter 18, verse 21. And this is where we're going to settle in. Because Peter, what does it say? Then Peter. And any time you read in your Bible and it says, then Peter, <laughs> I've spent my whole year this year, 2009, with Peter. Okay, with the men's Bible study, been doing, it took us a, six or seven months to go through First Peter. So I know Peter well now. And I know he is a numb nut. He is a goofball. So I know that when I read in the Bible that you, it says, then Peter said something, you know that something is, about, there's going to be teachable moment. It's about to happen. In other words, he's that guy in class when he raises his hand and he says, hey, teacher, teacher, I got something. The other disciples are going, ooh, this is going to go bad. It's going to be bad. 
But that's where we are. And, and, and Peter is that guy. I mean, he is, you would want him at your parties. Um, on the, on, as Rosa says, on the funometer. He is probably a 10 on the funometer. He is the good guy. He is, a, he is a guy who has rebuked Jesus. He is a guy who has denied Jesus. He is a guy who um, has uh, questioned Jesus and doubted Jesus. Like, if you're really Lord, you can make me come out and walk on that water. Can you prove that to me? Um, he's a guy who uh, didn't stand up when he should have stood up for Jesus. But he's also a guy who was transformed by Jesus. Big time. Big time. It's amazing how they took this fisherman and transformed him by the second or third chapter of Acts. And he is out after, after Jesus has told him to go feed his sheep, go love my sheep, go plant the church, go do it. By the second or third chapter of Acts, he has preached a sermon and two or three, 3,000 souls are saved that day. And then you read the book of First and Second Peter and you just see what a transforming work God can do in the life of a person. So he takes this fisherman, blue-collar fisherman, and makes him into a, just a great patriarch for the church. But we're at the point now where he's still asking these crazy questions. And that gives me confidence because it's okay for us to ask crazy questions to God. And so here we are. He says, chapter 18, verse 21. He says, then Peter came up to him. Remember, he had just said, listen, if your brother goes astray, if your brother sins against him, you go call him out. And if he repents, you forgive him, basically, to bring him back to restoration. And so Peter's thinking about that, and he comes up and he says, Okay, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? In other words, he was looking for a number. He wanted a number. We all want numbers. <laughs> I, was, I was, it starts early. It starts in, in kindergarten when we have a CRCT or whatever grade that starts. And you have, since when did we get grades in kindergarten? But we have grades now and those numbers matter. And then we have a CRCT test and those numbers matter that a percentage will pass the CRCT. And then we get um, a job and it matters what our income is. Have you seen the commercial? It says, what's your number? Your number, you're carrying it around. What's it going to take for you to retire? What's your number? You know, we, uh, we have rankings at the beginning of the season. I think Georgia's number changed after yesterday, but everybody has a number. When we play golf, we have a number. What'd you shoot? What'd you score? How many strokes are you going to give me? What's your number? We're all searching for a number. As a matter of fact, when I was, I guess we were in middle school, but, um, it was funny to me, it may not be to you, but, um, we were sitting around the dinner table, and my sister Louise, mom and dad, and I was in that kind of, I want to do this type of thing, and they were in that probably not wise to do this, and I threw out the, but everybody's doing it. Everybody. And mom and dad said, well, how many? And I said, a lot. And so, whatever year that was, we tried to determine what's a lot. And what we came up with that night was a lot is, y'all know how many a lot? Four. A lot is four. So in case you know, when you say everybody's doing it and your child comes up to you, everybody's doing it. That means four people have done it. Okay. And so don't buy into that parents, especially you uh, new parents. But um, four is a lot. But everyone wants to know, you know, we base our life on our number. What's the number? What, what, how, many, how much do I have to sell to meet my quota? We had a professor in college, Dr. McBrayer. He would come in and he would bring the stack of tests after we took it. They were great. And he sat it there, just sat there. And then he would start his lecture. 
He would go on and we're all kind of sweat wanting to know about what was in the stack because we wanted our number. And it's kind of sad because I think we're going to get to a point in our life where we say, I wonder if we're going to get to a point in our life when we say, um, stand before our maker. And he goes, I'm not really impressed with your number. You spent your whole life chasing these numbers. Why do you spend so much time chasing numbers? But we define ourselves by it. So that's where Peter is. He says, so Jesus, what's the number? What's the number? See, it was Jewish custom at that time that if you forgave someone three times, that was kind of a a spirit of forgiveness. You gave them three strikes and then they were out. But at this point, Peter says, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll double what's normal and I'll raise it one. How about seven? Does that work? Is that a good number? Jesus, how about this, Peter? How about seven times seven? 70. Peter. Abacus, I don't know what that. 490. Turns with 490? You want me to forgive this guy 490 times when my brother sins against me? Really? Really? Jesus says, listen, boys, y'all need a different abacus. See, y'all are so focused on the law, and the law can be good. But see, the law constricts you, the law has numbers. Because the system I work with is called grace. And grace has no numbers. It has no limit. He goes, let me tell you about it. So he says this. He says, therefore, and he starts to tell this little parable. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Now, what's going on here, because you've got the Roman Empire over this whole region and you have a king um, that the, the disciples could identify very clearly with a king and what that meant. And so when he talked about a servant, it meant that anybody who was under the king was a servant. Okay, so if I'm the king of the region of the old mountain hill area, it doesn't matter what your task is in the kingdom, you are a servant to the king. And that's kind of the setup in this in this parable. So the disciples could identify with when he said king, they understood that everybody was a servant. And this particular servant was likely a tax collector because we're going to talk about the amount that he owed him. But one thing that stands out to me in that verse 23, he says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Is that. We have a God that's going to come or that we're going to stand before and that's going to settle accounts with us. It's not the main point, but it sticks out to me to think, and he's not going to ask me what my number was. He's not going to ask me, um, tell me about your church attendance. He's not going to ask me, well, did you do nursery? Did you get on the nursery team? And he's not going to ask me, did I... How much I gave to the church. And he's not going to ask me um, how many old ladies I helped across the street. And he's not going to ask me if I cook dinner for my neighbor. What he's going to ask me when he comes to sell accounts, he goes, he's going to say, who do you trust? Who do you trust? It's not what you do, but it's who you trust. And so we're all going to have to stand before our God. Hebrews 9.27 says, just as man is destined to die once, and after that we will face judgment. It's not fun to think about, but we all, we'll all be judged. Again, not by what we've done, but by who we trust. Let's move on. And it says in chapter 20, uh, verse 24, it says, When he began to settle, so this king just decides, okay, period of time, maybe it's the end of the year, time to settle accounts. 
When it's time to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. I've read this in my life at least a dozen times. I don't know how many. I've read it at least a dozen times. And when I read that, he brought one that owed him 10,000 talents. What I have normally done, because I am an armchair theologian, and I read with the Bible on the chair of my arm, what I do is I immediately go to the next verse. Because that did not do much for me. He owed him some money. Let me tell you about 10,000 talents. One talent, one talent equals about 20 years of wages. One talent. Okay, so 1,000 talents equals 20,000 years of wages. Remember, I told you this guy was likely a tax collector. The disciples could identify with this. So what was likely going on, he was telling about a servant who was, whose task was to, to collect taxes, and he probably had multiple, multiple regions. So if a 1,000 talents equals 20,000 years of service, then 10,000 talents equals 200,000 years of labor, of wages. Let's just put that in today's terms. Let's say you make $30,000 a year. And let's say you owe 200,000 years of wages. You owe $6 billion. You are the government. Times much more. But if I came up to you and I told you, you owe me 10,000 talents. In other words, that debt that Jesus is describing hit the servants and they went 10,000. I mean, it hit them. It'd be like if I came in and said, I owe someone $6 billion. You guys would be like, you're in a mess. You are in a mess. In other words, the disciples, it, that, that total was incalculable. They, it was unpayable. They, he, it, 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 not doable. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. And see, this is where this hit home, hits home because, see, we owe a debt as well. And the debt that the servant owed the king caused a definite um, chasm, separation from the servant and the king. It's a little bit awkward if they were to have dinner together. Okay? It caused a separation. And see, we owe a debt to our Creator that has caused a separation between us and our Creator. And it's called sin. And most of you know that. And it's not a popular word. As a matter of fact, in the church, if we could just try to work that word out of the church, it would be a little bit, everyone would be a little bit more comfortable in church if we could work that word out. But the problem is, is that it's a reality. Is that we have a God who created everything and that we have sinned against Him. And because of that, it has caused a separation between humanity and our Creator. Isaiah 59, verse 2, it says that, uh, let me find my notes. It says that your, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your iniquities, your sin has caused a separation. So similar to the servant that's in the parable, we have a separation between us and our God. And see, that's not very popular if we say that, hey, what stands between you and your, your, our God is that we have all sinned. We've all sinned. And see, we, we're accustomed to saying, but hey, I'm a good guy. I mean, Ferguson, he's a great guy. And, and he is. I don't say that and go, he's a good guy. But no, he's really a sinner. No, I mean, he is. We all are. But he's a good guy. And Dykes is a good guy. And 
Paul's a good guy. We're good guys. We're all just good guys. Probably say it about Reynolds. Reynolds is a pretty good guy. And when we compare ourselves to what we see on the news, when we see the murderer, the adulterer, the thief, we are pretty good guys. But the problem is, is that we're comparing uh, ourselves to just a mess of humanity. And what we need to be comparing ourselves to is an all-powerful, almighty, all-holy, all-perfect, all-righteous God. And when we do that, what it says in Isaiah is that we are nothing but filthy rags. Even our righteous works are filthy rags compared to that holy God, compared to that perfect God. So the separation that that servant had between the king, the likelihood of him making himself right with that king, impossible. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.11 says, No one is righteous. No, not one. Nobody. It's not popular. Because I spend my life comparing myself to my old sluggard neighbor. And in that comparison, I do pretty good. He doesn't even edge his grass. Hey! But in comparison to that all-perfect, all-holy God, I'm an indebted servant who owes everything to my Creator. Everything. Let's pick up. 10,000 talents. A lot. (laughs) More than a lot. A lot was four. A, A lot, a lot more than a lot. Verse 25, And since he could not pay... His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. Couldn't pay. There wasn't a chance he was going to pay this. But he makes it sound like there was going to be some sort of punishment. You may not be able to pay $6 billion or 200,000 years of wages, but somebody's going to pay the penalty here. I'm going to sell you. I'm going to sell your family. I'm going to sell your stuff. And there is going to be restitution. There are going to be consequences for what you have squandered. Remember, this guy was collecting taxes. He had the money at one time, but he squandered it somewhere. There's going to be a payment. And there's going to be a payment for us as well. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Death. And if the king made this guy pay, if he made him get on the, king, on the palace floor and scrub it with a toothbrush for the rest of his life, that would be, wouldn't you say, that would be justice. That would be okay. That would be right if he did that. Someone is going to pay because this guy had no hope. Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees imploring him. Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Don't we do that sometimes? God, I know I messed up. Let me let's negotiate. Let's let's work this out. Let's work this out. He said, "I'll pay you." He didn't have a chance to pay him everything. I was just that's just what came out of his mouth. But what first came out of his mouth was, "Have patience with me." Have pity on me he didn't say god he didn't say king give me what's what i deserve he didn't say that because he knew what he deserved he didn't say king give me what's fair be fair to me he didn't want what was fair because again what was fair would have been 
punishment for the rest of his living days. He said, King, give me mercy. Mercy. And when we think about that debt that we owe that has separated us from God, the sin that we have committed, it would not be wise for us to say to God, God, that's not fair. Because if I'm God, and I've got folks who are out here idol worshiping instead of the creator God, you want fair? Gone! You're done! That's fair! You want fairness? You want justice? You're gone! So this servant comes up and says, I want mercy. And that's what we should be begging for. We should be begging for mercy. Because if we got what we deserved... It would not be pretty. Then verse 27, it says, And out of pity for him, out of pity, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. Six billion dollars, 200 years of wages, canceled. Matter of fact, he said, I'll tell you what, servant, I'll pay it. Somebody's got to pay. Let me just tell you, if I owe the bank, some of you can identify with this in here. If I owe the bank, let's go a little smaller. Let's say I owe them $2 million, to be realistic. I owe them $2 million. I go to the bank and I say, I can't pay it. And the bank tells me, we're going to forgive your debt. The bank's going to have to absorb the cost. Can I get a nod on that? A few bankers in here. Somebody's going to absorb the cost. So when the king tells the servant, I'll tell you what, you owe me an incalculable, you owe me an unpayable debt, but here's what I'm going to do. Cancel. I'm paying it. In other words, he gave the servant something that he did not deserve. You know what you call that when you get something you don't deserve? You call that mercy. Mercy. We say, that's a church word, I guess. We pray for mercy. You remember that? Uncle, say mercy, 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 mercy. We give them something, or you don't give them what they do deserve. You call that grace. You give them something that they don't deserve is grace. You don't give them what he does deserve is mercy. And he did both in this time. He gave them forgiveness, free gift. And he didn't give them what he did deserve, but gave him mercy. Wow. So God looks at us and says, I'll tell you what, you owe me a lot. You owe me your life. You owe me everything. And the wages of sin is death. And you deserve the wrath of God. We all deserve the wrath of God. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the hit. I'm going to send my son, Jesus, God in the flesh, Fully human, fully divine, and I'm going to let him take the hit for you. As a matter of fact, it's not going to be painless. It's going to be very painful. And he's going to absorb all the wrath that you deserve, and he's going to take it all for you. In other words, I'm going to put the righteousness that is rightly his, I'm going to give it to you. It's going to be imputed on you. And it says in Ephesians chapter 2, It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It says, by grace 
gift. By grace you have been saved through faith. Titus 3.11 says, He saved us not because of works done by, by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. There it is again. And then Romans 6.23, which I've already told you, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So just like the king and the servant who forgave everything, we have a heavenly father who says, listen, you owe me a debt that you cannot pay. You owe me a debt that you cannot even fathom. And see, some of you still struggle with the fact that you don't owe that much. You say, I haven't made any idols. Again, I'm pretty good. But see, some of you were worshiping yesterday afternoon. Did y'all see how many people act like a fools for about 11 guys out on the field? I'm not saying it's bad. I mean, I, hey, you want to know what I did yesterday? I went running yesterday morning. Okay? I got home. I went real early. Okay? So I got home. I took a little siesta. Mama and the boys are at the beach. I took a little siesta. I don't do naps, but I did one yesterday. I knew that the Georgia game... I'm not even a Georgia... Barry, my school was undefeated. Barry College. We don't even have a team, but I knew the Georgia game was... <laughs> I knew the Georgia game was going on yesterday, and then I knew the Alabama game, and then I, I, I did pay-per-view so I could see the Auburn game. Andrew, I'm just kidding. I didn't do pay-per-view. <laughs> Andrew Cole wanted to do some pay-per-view, but, um, and I just, I just kind of gluttonized myself. And, and then in the middle of the afternoon, I planned this out. When we were running, I was running with six of my buddies, and um, I told them this. I said, what I'm going to do, Mama's not at the house, I'm going to order Marco's Pizza. It's going to get there about game time, and I'm going to go buy the two-pounder bag of peanut M&Ms. I mean, it's just me and gluttony. It was me and me. It was all about me. It was everything yesterday was about me. And so you say, well, that's not that bad. It's one day. I, some of you might raise, I did the same thing. <laughs> that was good. But see, when we take a good thing, and we make it a God thing. And I'm not saying college football is bad. I'm not, I'm not even getting on that tirade. I'm gonna, I'll probably do the same thing today that I did yesterday. So call me about three. It'd be the other half of Marcos. But, but if we take a God thing, if we take a good thing and make it a God thing, then it becomes a bad thing. And we've done that with a lot of things in our life. And we've made so many other things. We've made our money. We've made our family. We've made so many things our God. And that's sin. That has caused a big separation. And that's what God came for. But again, if you, think you're, if you think your sin is just like I just spilt a glass of milk, then you really, it really doesn't produce anything in you. Because, see, milk can be wiped up pretty easily. But if you think of your sin as rejecting of our Creator, rejecting our King, and realize what our punishment that should have been ours was, it should produce a life, a response of gratitude of worship, of response, of thankfulness. And so I'm thinking about this servant in this parable. If he had that amount of debt canceled, wouldn't you think he's going to skip out of there? Praise the king. Praise the king. You will not believe what he did. He canceled it. Guys, did you know what I owed? He canceled it. Let's sing and praise the king. But the story took an amazing twist. 
It says, but when, verse 28, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A <laughs> hundred denarii. So that's about five or six months of wages. So we had 200,000 years of wages versus five or six months of wages. He found a fellow servant who owed him a little bit. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Does this sound familiar? Have patience with me and I will pay you. Exactly what the servant had said to the king. Have patience with me. I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And when they went and reported to their master all that had taken place, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place, then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. In other words, I showed you mercy. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant? I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. He was never going to pay it. He was done. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your own heart. So the disciples hear that parable. The disciples hear that parable. And you can imagine when they hear them tell that second twist of the story, they go, that's crazy. That is absolutely absurd. It would be like if I owed Ferguson a million dollars and he forgave it. And he said, nah, I'll tell you what, I'll take the hit. And then I go over here and choke Paul because he owes me ten bucks. Y'all would all look at that and go, you are whacked. You're crazy. And so the disciples saw that and went, you want to know about forgiveness? You want to know about a number? See, the forgiveness I have, it has no limits. But see, where that hits home for us sometimes is that we hold things against our spouse. We hold them in contempt. We hold them guilty for words that they say. There may be people in here in your life point group, in your, uh, on, on a team of something that's just not working out, and you're just holding a grudge. You're going, you know what, I, you should have heard what they said. And then we take it to someone else because we start to get allies when that type of stuff happens. Do you, you hear what they said? No, they're, they're, we're not doing what they talked of what uh, Jesus talked about in the, in the parable before. We said, no, we'd like to spread rumors and we want that person to pay. We want them, we want justice. And Jesus is pointing out in his story, he said, listen, if you guys want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like, it doesn't work like that with your measuring system. You see, you have been forgiven so much. So much. How can you possibly hold anything against your brother or sister? How? And I would imagine at that point the disciples got a little bit quiet. Kind of got the message. So it's not 490 is what you're telling me. It's, uh, it's unlimited grace. It's unlimited forgiveness. It's unlimited mercy. 
See, we have a great God. We have a great God that looks at our messed up lives. And folks, if you just think you spilled milk, if I just think I spilled milk and that's the only thing I've got going wrong with me, we all need a wake up and a shake up. Because we have sinned against a great and powerful God who said, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the hit for you. I'm going to send my son. And he's going to pay it all. He's going to pay it all. All you got to do is believe it. All you got to do is receive it. All you got to do is ask him. It's done. Cancel. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as man is destined to die once, and after that face judgment, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you stand before him, he looks at you and said, Yours was paid for. Oh, it cost a lot, but it was paid for. Come on in. Come on in. See, this can be head knowledge. Or it can be heart knowledge. And I told you at the beginning, some of you have heard that parable a bunch of times. But you know what that, that servant did when he walked away and went to the next servant? This is what amazed me. I talk about this a lot. When we have soldiers up here, I say it all the time. Don't forget. Don't forget these guys when they're over in Iraq or wherever they are. They're somewhere fighting. Don't forget. You know, we forget so easily what it cost us, what it cost Jesus to pay our debt. We forget it. We forget. And so therefore we go to our brother. We go to our sister. We go to our wife. We go to our husband. We go to our kids. And we hold them in contempt. Not forgiving you. And it would be like the disciples. Who looked at that parable and went. What? Are you crazy? How could you not forgive your brother. When you look at all that God has done. Guys, come on back. We're going to take communion. And this is something that the, uh, that the scriptures have told us to do. See, as I said earlier, it cost a lot for our debts to be forgiven. There was a lot of bloodshed. There was a lot of pain endured on the cross. And at the Last Supper... Jesus told his disciples, he said, listen, as he took bread and broke it, he said, this is my body broken for you, laid out for you. As often as you eat it and as often as you drink it, do it and remember me. So we're going to do that. Let's pray. God, I just thank you. I thank you for the word of God. I thank you, Lord, um, that you give us reminders so that we don't forget. Lord, we need Him so much more. Because I know I have a tendency to forget what it cost. I have a tendency to think that my sin is very, very small. I have a tendency to think that I can clean up my own mess. Just give me a rag. God, Your Word has told us that Even our righteous, our most righteous work is like a filthy rag. And so, Lord, we need you. We need to be reminded. And, Lord, can we also remember that um, 
in light of what you did for us and in light of who we are, Lord, it should make us treat others differently. It should make us, make us treat our brothers and sisters in Christ differently. It, it should make it easy for us to forgive one another. And I know that's not natural. It's not natural for me. It's not natural for most. Because, see, we want people to pay the penalty. But God, I just pray that you would help us. We need so much help. So much. Help us remember. Help us not forget. Help us to see our brothers and sisters in Christ the way you see them, Lord. So that we can forgive as you forgave. In Jesus' name. Well, let's do this. Hey, the way we do communion here is on the first Sunday of every month. We take it together. It's available every week. But... um, Again, this is what Jesus told us to do. He said, do it and do it often and remember me when you do it. Don't forget. So it's not just some little rogue tradition that we do. And, let, you know, this is the last 10 minutes and we're going to do this. And we'll be back at the lake in a little bit or got lunch plans. And this is a time to remember and be thankful. And it's kind of an invitation only deal. Because, see, if your faith is not in the blood of Christ, then it's just a waste. It's just coming down here and getting a cracker and juice. And it's kind of weird, just to be honest with you. It's kind of goofy if you don't believe. See, but if you believe, it's a reminder who God is, what He did for us, who we are. And we need to be reminded. So let's don't rush out.